You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. We come um, now to the high the watermark, I believe, of the book of Jonah. There are many great texts in Scripture, and this text, uh, I think, ranks with the best of them. Here it is. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. There's a hymn of John Newton's. It's not a well-known hymn. It begins with the line, In evil long I took delight. In evil long I took delight. And there's a phrase which mentions our Lord's second look. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. I'll read it to you later on. Our God is the God of the second look. He doesn't hold grudges. God came to Jonah a second time. In spite of all that has gone before, in spite of all that we've seen, and how Jonah tried to avoid uh, what God wanted him to do, in spite of it all, God comes to Jonah a second time. Now, Jonah's recent experiences have taught him many things. He had learned many things in the belly of the fish. Strangest place to learn anything, isn't it? It's not a place that he would ever have envisaged learning much. We can't begin to think what was going through his mind as he sunk down into the depths of the sea and then suddenly is swallowed up can't imagine what was going on in his mind, but he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And, and you see, merely being ejected from the fish would not solve all his problems. Oh, it was an immediate problem solved because he wondered, would he survive? Would he live? Well, now he's been thrown out onto the land. He knows he's breathing. He knows he's alive, but it doesn't solve all his problems. It's one thing to be delivered. It's another thing to be called to do something. And I suspect that that Jonah feared that his time of usefulness was over. I I, I think that, that as he contemplated how he was surviving in the belly of that fish, as eventually then he's thrown out onto the land, I'm sure as he turned over the events, of recent days in his mind, he would have thought, I've blown it. I've absolutely blown it. God asked me to do something specifically. It was clear, there was no doubt about it, and I've blown it. What use am I now? My usefulness is over. So it was now a question of whether or not God would act further. God had acted so far But would he do any more? Would there be another chance? That was the question. This hymn, An evil long I took delight, Unawed by shame or fear, Till a new object struck my sight And stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. 
It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah, between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, lived in a state of wondering. Wondering, would God ever use him again? And certainly, God did not have to. God did not have to. But the Lord came to him a second time. And it should give us all great comfort, I believe, to realize that the best of God's servants have made foolish mistakes. The Bible's full of examples of that. But even though they have done that, they were used again. And it gives me no small comfort to realize that there are those that have gone before me that have failed to do what they ought to have done. And yet God does not hold a grudge. Look at Abraham. Remember, Abraham passed his wife off as his sister. He lied. Jacob. Jacob, how's he, what's he known for? Being crafty, deceitful, cunning. David, a man after God's own heart. Well, we know about him. Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples who denied the Lord three times with oaths and curses. And yet, God hadn't finished with him. If God can use people like that, he can use me and he can use you. God doesn't hold grudges. He therefore came to Jonah the second time. Maybe, maybe there's a word here for someone here in this meeting tonight. And as you look back over your life, maybe, maybe a long time ago, maybe recently, and you felt you've blown it. You felt you've, what I would call, made a hash. And you think, could God ever use me again? Would God even be interested in using me again? Well, if that's you, this is a word for you tonight. This is a word for you. Now, there's some of the profoundest principles in this story that, that lie behind God's dealings with man and and I want to look at some of those principles. Here, here's the first one I want to look at. It's this. God is obligated to no man. God is obligated to no man, or no woman for that matter. Let's be clear about this. God is not obligated to anyone. And as far as Jonah is concerned, God didn't even have to send that wind after him. God didn't have to hurl that wind after Jonah, but he did. He didn't have to position that fish just at exactly the right place where Jonah was going to be tossed over the side at precisely that moment, but he did. He didn't have to eject Jonah from the fish 
He could have kept Jonah in the fishing. That would have been the end of Jonah. But he did have him ejected from the fish. And he certainly didn't have to come to Jonah the second time. But praise God, he did. So let's keep this fundamental principle in mind. God is obligated to no one. In the language of of the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards, man is God's enemy. That's the reality. Man is God's enemy. Oh, how the Christian world needs to rediscover that truth all over again. Wonder, does does that truth surprise you? Look at how the Apostle Paul uh, describes man in the third chapter of Romans. If you have a Bible there, turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3, and I'll read from verse 10. And he's quoting the Old Testament here, Paul. He says, "As as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands No one who seeks God, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not just describing mankind in Old Testament times. That describes mankind today. Man in his natural state. That's how he's described in Scripture. Jesus himself said that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil are evil. You see, I believe the average man today, when he gets a taste of religion, he darkens a church door, gets the idea, here's the idea that he gets, that he's doing God a favor by being interested in religion or coming to church now and again. Christendom today witnesses the shabbiest gospel ever known. Men of the idea that they become Christians because of what they do for God. And that is nonsense. The Bible says the very opposite is true. That we become Christians because of what God does for us. And when God comes in mercy, it means he did not have to do it. When God comes to us in mercy, it means he did not have to do it. If he had to do it, it would be because we deserve it. But we don't. We are his natural enemies, or in our natural state, we are the enemies of God. And God would be just and fair in sending the whole world to an endless hell. Some people say they can't sleep at night at the thought that God could send anyone to hell. But the truth, the truth needs to get hold of us so strongly that we stay awake at night wondering how God could save anybody. How can a holy God save guilty sinners? 
How can a just God forgive guilty sinners? When we realize that we have rejected him, when we realize that we live in disobedience, when we realize that we live according to the flesh, the miracle of miracles is that God should come to us at all. God can give mercy or he can withhold mercy. He can save or he can damn us. God is not obligated to anyone. Let me leave a second principle with you. God ties himself to faith because it is he who gives the faith. God ties himself to faith because it's he who gives the faith. I wonder, are we clear about this, Christian people? Faith is God's gift. The faith that we exercise is a gift from God. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Faith is seeing that salvation is of the Lord. Faith is seeing, and, and I say seeing, I mean understanding, perceiving that what God requires has already been accomplished outside ourselves. Jonah saw this. But does this surprise you? That faith is the gift of God? The Apostle Paul said, in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 3 and verse 2, not everyone has faith. For by nature, Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, by nature we are dead in trespasses and sins in which we used to live. We are dead. Now, think about that. When a person is dead, he cannot move, he cannot speak, much less can he hear. Something needs to take place in order for him to hear. And for this reason, faith is something that God alone supplies. He's the one who makes us alive. We were dead. Isn't that what Paul says to the Ephesians? You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you used to live. But because of the love for what he loved us, he has made us alive in Christ. And so it is we by nature could never have believed. Left to our own devices, never would we have believed. Do you think for one moment that you believe because you are cleverer than other people? Surely not. Because you're be better than other people? Absolutely not. Faith is God's gift. Jonah had to learn this lesson all over again. Sometimes Christians have to be put in the belly of the fish to be taught certain principles that are so obvious in Scripture. Jonah came to himself, and the ultimate lesson that he learned was this. Salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. And that leads to a third principle that we might tend to forget. God accommodates us with language on our level. God accommodates us with language on our level. Put it another way, God communicates his word to us by way of accommodation. The Lord meets us on our own level. 
and he speaks to us in a way that we as simple people can understand. Let me give you an example. Back in Genesis 22, uh, if you could turn back to that, you know the incident about uh, Abraham offering up Isaac. Genesis 22 and verse 12, it's an interesting verse. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. That verse would seem to imply that God learns something. Now I know that you love me. But this was the language of accommodation, as if God did not know up until then. And, and so it is with the gospel. God tells us to tell people to do something that they cannot do. We are told to tell men to believe, <clears throat> and they can't do it of themselves. We're told to tell men to repent, and dead men can't repent. They're dead but they cannot do it. And yet, when they do believe and repent, their first reaction is to think that it's something that they themselves have done. But God confronts men initially on their own level. It is as we grow in grace, we learn the family secret. Another way of putting it is, is like this. God at first uses, if I can say, baby talk with us. He talks to us in simple ways. When God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, what God was really saying to Abraham was this, now you see what I knew, that you love me. I have let you see it. Do you understand? He's let Abraham see how much he loves God. God already knew that. But now Abraham knows how much he loves God. What a pity that some Christians never move beyond the baby talk, even after they've been Christians for years. We would expect someone recently converted to say that they've given their heart to the Lord, but, but we need to move beyond that to grasp and see that it is God that is at the, at the base of our conversion. It's God who, who initiates it. it. The whole gospel is initiated by God. For God so loved the world. Not, that word doesn't say, you know, man so realized his position that he cried out to God. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God took the initiative. And Jonah saw this. Jonah saw that God did not deliver him because of anything in himself. And thus God at first meets us on our level. And later we learn the family secret. We are saved by grace. Later we learn we have been adopted into the family of God. Later still, we learn that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in him. But God always confronts man initially by using this language of accommodation. God always comes the second time, and the second time is effectual. Now, applying this to ourselves, the first time God comes is simply through his word. The first time is simply the fact that the preaching of the gospel comes to us. Jesus described the, 
preaching of the gospel like this in Matthew 22 and verse 14. He says, many are called. Many are called. For example, I'm preaching now to a large group of people. All of you, all of you are being called now. And you can look back upon times when you heard the preaching of the gospel before. Many, many times you were called. But there must be the second time, the bit that says many are called, but few are chosen. And this is when God gives hearing ears so that we can really hear him. This is how we come to see, to perceive, to understand. The scales come off our eyes, and we understand, and and suddenly it all fits together. And we wonder, why did we never see that before? Well, we never saw it before because we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive. This is when God does that work. It's a breakthrough. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain a second look he gave. God always comes the second time. What if the first time you heard preaching it was also the last? What if? The chances are you wouldn't be here. But God goes to great pains to secure the response that he wants. For Jonah, the second time came none too soon, but it was soon enough. God knows when you must hear that word from beyond. God knows how much you can bear. God knows how much you can take. He's aware of all the foolish things that you have done. He's aware of all the stupid things that I have done. He knows the things that you've done that no one else knows about but you. You know. He knows these things. and You don't like to think about them because when you do, you feel worse. But still he comes a second time. You may say, but how can I know that he has come again to me? Well, I'd ask you, do you see that any deliverance is outside yourself? Can you see that? Do you understand that? It's not of you. It's all of God. And do you see that God is king? Do you see that he's absolutely sovereign over everything in the world? Do you see that his way is the right way? Even though you may not understand his way, his ways are higher than our ways, but they're better than our ways. Do you see that? And do you see that you must do things his way? Do you see this? He's coming to you now the second time with a second look. You who have been rebellious, disobedient, you who have been in hiding. Maybe he comes again to you, even tonight. It's none too soon, but it's soon enough. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Let me read that hymn of John Newton's to you again. I think it's a powerful hymn. In evil long I took delight Unawed by shame or fear, 
till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Let's pray.